This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. I've got a lot to be grateful for this week, including Plant Yourself Podcast patrons Edwin Vega, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, and Anthony Disson. Thank you. You guys rock. Also, I got two new reviews on iTunes, which is awesome, and which I will share with you after today's episode. So let's get right into it. My guest today is Janice Stanger, PhD. She's author of The Perfect Formula Diet, and this is her second appearance on the podcast. And I wanted her back because of a presentation she gave that was really awesome at the November Wellness Forum Health Conference in Columbus, Ohio, on hormones. And she got my attention right away when she asked a question that I knew the answer to. She, from reading from a medical textbook, she read blank, leaving the word blank, is the most powerful anabolic hormone in the human body. And then she asked us to fill in the blank. And me being a um, smarty pants, I stood up, raised my hand, and I boomed out the answer, obviously human growth hormone, which turns out to be incorrect. So I paid very close attention to the rest of her presentation. And in our conversation, we recapitulate a lot of what she talked about there, about the hormones in the human body and how we can get them into balance and how we can get them out of balance. We talk about estrogen and testosterone. We talk about insulin and glucagon. We talk about the craze of anti-aging hormonal treatments and why soy prevents breast cancer and man boobs and doesn't cause either of them. Should we even talk about um, things that are not related to food, which is fun, like why we should be washing our new clothes before we wear it, and how can we mitigate environmental toxins, and a discussion about POPs, persistent organic pollutants, and why even the most organic grass-fed beef is so full of these pollutants that we're much better off eating conventional broccoli than uh, farm-raised animal products. So without further ado, Dr. Janice Stanger, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Great to be here. So you're, you're back largely because, uh, well, I love talking to you, but also because you gave a talk on hormones and hormones and diet and health at the recent Wellness Forum Health Conference in Columbus in November 2015. And I was in attendance, and I was scribbling furiously, but I didn't get it all. And so I, for my own selfish reasons, I wanted you to have you repeat it on the podcast so I can understand it better. And, and I know that I need this because up near the beginning of the presentation, you asked a question. You asked, uh, what is the most potent anabolic hormone in the human body? And I, along with several other people, stood up and you called on me, and I confidently answered and got it wrong. So uh, I hope you, you, will, you will share that with us as well. But first, let me just um, you know, welcome you and ask you to let us know what you're going to be talking about with me uh, on this call. Well, I want to talk about, first off, what hormones are, because very few people know that. We kind of bandy around the term hormones pretty casually, but... You know, if you stopped and asked people what a hormone is, most people wouldn't really be able to tell you. And then from there, go into, you know, just at a high level, like three ways you can mess up your hormones. What are three things you can do to really get your hormones wrong and malfunctioning? And then we can look at a few specific hormones, including that one that is the most anabolic. Okay, so let's let's start by defining hormones, and then probably we'll have to define anabolic as well, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get moving. Okay, well, you know, your body has 100 trillion cells. We've probably talked about this before. Um, so your body's this awesome composition of 100 trillion cells, and they need a way of talking to each other. And, and your cells have two main ways of talking to each other. One is through the nervous system. But the thing about the nervous system is each cell in the nervous system can only talk to its neighbor, can talk to one of its next-door neighbors, and it might have several next-door neighbors crowded around it. And then they can spend the message to, you know, some of their other next door neighbors and so on and so on down the line. But you can only connect uh, different organs, for example, that have this uh, row of hormones between them. In other words, they have to have this hormone road, this, uh, sorry, this nervous cell road between them. So, for example, if there's not a road of nerve cells between your kidney and your 
liver, then your kidney and liver would have no way of talking to each other. But your kidney might have extremely important information that affects the function of your liver. So it needs to be able to tell your liver, you know, hey, this is what's going on. Here's what you have to do. And so on for every major organ in your body from your bones, you know, to your digestive system and so on. So the hormones are what allow your uh, different cells and organs to talk to each other over a distance. So it really enables communication over a distance. So how does it do this? It does it by taking these hormones. First off, it makes the hormones, and there's certain endocrine glands that make hormones, and then there's other cells in your body like your skin that make some hormones but that aren't, you know, that have other functions. And so these hormones go into your blood and they circulate around your whole body because your blood circulates around your whole body and they get picked up by the target organ and it gives them the information they need to know. So that enables every part of your body to pretty much talk to every other part of your body and, and circulate this information you need to survive. So how does it do this? Because you might say, okay, so the kidneys just release some information at once to tell the liver, but how do we know it won't all get picked up by the stomach? You know, it might get picked up in the wrong place. Right, like the de- well, your body's the dead letter pretty darn this. smart. That's how we've survived this long. So what there is with hormones is they have a certain shape, and they can therefore only get picked up by certain receptors. So it's kind of like the principle that you can't put a square peg in a round hole. And so the square peg is going to find the square peg receptor and the round peg is going to find the round peg receptor and so on. And that's how hormones are able to target where they're supposed to go and what cells are supposed to activate and and kind of cause them to do something. So basically that's what hormones are. They're messengers at a distance. And, you know, you couldn't survive without them. They have some very, very important functions, for example, overall metabolism, uh, growth, sexual development, and, and reproduction. And then just overall homeostasis, which is maintaining your body in kind of balanced ranges, for example, keeping the right amount of calcium in your blood, which needs to be tightly regulated, um, you know, controlling your blood pressure, and, and all kinds of things like that need to be controlled by uh, hormones, and that's how you're able to survive, basically. It's a very important topic to know more about. Okay. So when, when I was a kid learning about science, the model of the human body that I learned was basically the brain is the command center for everything, and everything else is just responding to commands from the brain. So it was like, you know, send all, or, you know, reply all. So the brain is the one sending the messages and everything else is just receiving it. But we have a different understanding of body intelligences now, don't we? That there's different, that that the organs of the body themselves and the systems are are generating intelligence that needs to be um, spread around? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all a big feedback loop. It's like your whole body is one big feedback loop with every part talking to the other. So the brain does have a lot of central functions because the brain not only produces these nervous impulses, the brain itself also produces some hormones. And the hormones produced by the brain usually work on other endocrine glands to tell those endocrine glands either to produce more or less of their hormones. But why does the brain do this? Because the brain senses how many hormones are already circulating. So it's kind of like a thermostat and and a furnace. So the thermostat turns the furnace on, but then when the furnace generates a lot of heat, it turns the thermostat off. So it's the same way with your brain. Your brain turns things off and on, but does it in response to things going on through your whole body. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about hormones, they're, they're messages, but, but the hormones tend to have a limited vocabulary, right? So that a, a hormone would always say the same thing. It wouldn't be like a letter you know, an envelope with a letter in it that could say anything. So if we're sending out a particular hormone, it's always saying, hey, make more of this or turn that off or switch from this to this, right? Each hormone is a specific predictable instruction. Is that correct? Yeah, they might have a range of functions, and we're going to look at some later that do a lot of things, but they only do it when they interact with the receptor. So, for example, the square peg hormone only affects the cells with the square peg receptor. And that might be different cells throughout the body. So 
the hormone running around, for example, a sex hormone, if let's say it's a woman, you know, when it hits her ovaries, might tell them to do one thing, and when it hits her breasts, might tell them to do something else, but it only interacts with specific cells via specific receptors. So you're right, it is really specific. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and, and when I think about feedback loops like a thermostat and a furnace, it's either saying basically more or less, right, up or down. Is that kind of how hormones typically work, to say we need, we need more of X and less of Y? Yeah, absolutely, it does. Uh, so they are very specific like that. And, and same nerves. I mean, we, our body wants us to be specific because it's trying to regulate operation within very, very, very tight ranges, which are the ranges you can survive in. I mean, for example, look at temperature. You know, your body wants to be 98.6. It can be a little cooler. It can be a little warmer, but it's going to real quickly get out of its survivable range. So you know, things in your body need to be maintained within very, very tight limits for most aspects of how your body works. All right. So it sounds like the endocrine system or the hormone messaging system is really crucial to survival in the moment as well as long-term health. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, You can survive for five minutes without your hormones. Okay. So so tell us, how, how do we screw up our hormones? If I, if I wanted to completely mess, mess up my endocrine system, what would I do? Well, I'm going to talk about three things, and, and they're all bad, but I'll start with the one that's least bad. And that's by what I call kind of enjoying the worst of modern lifestyles. So that would be things like just staying inside all day, sitting for hours at a stretch, not moving around, uh, getting too little erratic sleep. You know, you're up all night um, playing video games or watching YouTube or whatever, then rushing around and skipping meals. And then the other part of that that really affects your endocrine system is using products with a lot of artificial chemicals in them. So, for example, chemicals that are in fragrances, herbicides, pesticides, you know, almost everything around us in modern life, unfortunately. A lot of those things are endocrine disruptors, and they mess up your endocrine system. Uh So on the scale of kind of plus 10 to minus 10 and how you can either support or harm your endocrine system, I give that a minus 8. Okay. So the next one so, I give a let, minus nine to. Let, let me let me uh, ask a couple of questions about that, just so folks know what we're what we're talking about. So sure. when, when I read things like in on you know natural websites and they're saying like don't drink out of plastic bottles that have you know BPA or don't cook on uh, nonstick surfaces, are, is that what you're talking about in terms of um, you know as as well as like you know shampoos and fragrances and and things like that. Are, are, is that where the typical chemicals come from that disrupt our endocrine system? Well, certainly it's one place would be in cookware and eatingware. And by the way, the whole thing about certain components of plastic, you know, if one component's taken out, another's going to be put in. And the only reason it seems better is because it hasn't been studied yet to find out what bad effect that one has. So don't be overly reassured that you're buying plastic that says no component XYZ in it because it's probably no better than the one with XYZ. We just haven't studied ABC, which is what's being used to replace XYZ. So, yeah, but all these man-made chemicals uh, that get into your body, some are more persistent than others. Some will hang around for decades. Some of your body can get rid of in a few hours or a few days or a few weeks. But they're everywhere, unfortunately. They're, They're in things we cook and eat with. Uh, they're also, for example, in our carpets, they're in our chairs, they're in the paint on our walls, um, you know, they're in our electrical wiring, and, and a lot of times they're embedded in our clothing, which is why you should always wash new clothing before you wear it. Uh, it gets at least some of them out, you know, and so on. So unfortunately, in modern life, there's over 80,000 of these chemicals, and they're everywhere, and they spread around the world. So even if you moved to Antarctica and only ate organic fruit, you'd still be getting some. But the point is we want to minimize them. We can definitely minimize, and that's what we have the power to do, and that's what we want to do. Okay, so maybe at, at, at the end, I'm hearing people like... And I'm sure you get these questions a lot, like, do you drink out of plastic cups? And do you, you know, what, but uh, we'll, we'll hold those. And so that's, that's minus eight. 
on a on a terrible scale. So uh, let's go. Let's go to the let's go to the worst one. What's what's the, what's next? Okay. Well, the minus nine. I'll just kind of glance over this. Is second guessing your body by taking supplements, and in this case, I mean especially hormonal supplements. So a lot of people do that, particularly in conjunction with anti-aging medicine. And certainly there are times when it's medically justified to take hormones. In fact, there's times when you have to take hormones because it'll save your life because you have a specific clinical condition. But the valid time to take hormones is when you've really thought through all the options. You have a specific diagnosis. You talked about it with your doctor. You've researched it and you realize this is best for you and, and you really need to do it. But the main reason people take hormones is they just have these general goals like they want to be stronger, they want to be anti-aging, or they want to lose weight or something like that. That is a really bad reason to take hormones, and you should not be second-guessing your body. Okay, so, so that's, that's, that, a, that's a pretty easy one to avoid. Right, exactly, exactly. So let's go into minus 10. So the minus 10 way to mess up your hormones is to eat animal food. Okay, that's gonna that's gonna come probably as no surprise to my regulars, but to people who may be <laughs> listening to this for the first time, animal foods. How do they, you know, what's the relationship between animal foods and hormone disruption? Well, for one thing, animal foods have a lot of hormones in them, and there's no way to avoid that. Even if you buy so-called naturally raised animals that haven't been given added hormones. Remember, animals and humans share much of the same physiology. Therefore, animals need hormones to survive just like humans do. And every second of every day, animals have all these hormones coursing through their body. And, um, you know, and at the time they're killed, those hormones are going to be there. Or at the time they're milked, if it's a dairy cow, they're going to be there. At the time, you know, the egg is laid, if, if you're looking at eggs, it's going to be there. So... You know, there's hormones in all animal foods. There's also, we talked about these chemicals. You shouldn't have all these, you know, 80,000 chemicals. The ones that are worst of all these 80,000, the very worst ones are called persistent organic pollutants. And those are all uh, pollutants or chemicals that dissolve in fat. And therefore, most plants don't naturally have a lot of fat. So when you look at plants, they might have some of these persistent organic pollutants on the surface where you can wash them away, but they're not going to have a whole lot incorporated in the part of them they eat. For example, let's say it's an apple. You can clean most of the persistent organic pollutants off the surface. And in the apple itself, since there's so little fat, there's going to be very, very, very low levels of these organic pollutants. But if you're looking at something that naturally has fat, such as, you know, dairy or eggs or um, meat of any kind or fish, they're all going to have these persistent organic pollutants, what's called bioaccumulated in their bodies, which means because they dissolve in fat, there's going to be more and more and more and more accumulate. So you get very hefty doses of these persistent organic pollutants. And then in addition to that, there's other ways that in specific hormones that animal foods can work. And we can look at a couple of them as, as we talk about a couple specific hormones if we have time to do that. Okay. So, so one, one of the issues is that these animals have hormones in them, and the hormones, are they identical to human hormones or similar enough that we get confused? Um. It, it's both. Some are absolutely identical and some are similar enough that the body gets confused. For example, the, the estrogen in dairy is the same as human estrogen. You know, there might be other hormones that are slightly um, different, but, you know, they are close enough. Sometimes, you know, we say you can't put a square peg in a round hole, but if it's close enough, it'll sometimes come in. Mm -hmm. And that's what people talk about, Howard, for example, phytoestrogens. You hear people say, well, don't eat soy because it has all these phytoestrogens. Well, these are um, chemicals in plants that have a structure that is very far from being the same as human estrogen. It's not the same at all. But it has a shape where it can sometimes fit on some of these estrogen receptors. And it, yet it turns out that when you look at it, because they're not necessarily going to activate these receptors, they're just going to block them, that when you look at the effect of on health of people that eat soy, it's actually positive. I mean, you know, soy helps prevent breast cancer, it helps prevent aggressive prostate cancer, 
those are the most well-studied. It, it might have other beneficial effects on the body that aren't as well-studied, like cardiovascular effects. So that's where you have a little bit of the, the confusion that's beneficial is in these plant hormone-like structures that aren't remotely the same as human hormones, but can sometimes kind of lodge in that um, round hole, so to speak. Well, that's, the ones that from are... animals are either extremely identical or they're close enough that they're going to fit pretty neatly and, and have the same type of effect. So, so it almost it's like, um, you know, when I was childproofing our house when our uh, kids were born, I would block the electrical outlets with these plastic things so they couldn't stick their fingers or sharp objects into the electrical outlets. So that's kind of like soy, right? It, it, uh, it fits in there, but it's not like plugging in a power saw. Exactly. And that's a really, really good analogy. That's, that's something everybody should be able to relate to. Yes. Cool. I just understood something. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so <laughs> thank you. Cool. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. Tell me more. Okay, so should we circle back now to your anabolic hormone? Yeah, so when, when you ask the question, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm clever. I'm going to say it's going to be, um, I think I said uh, human growth factor or, or IGF-1 or, or, or one of those, but uh, that wasn't right. So, so, so what, what, is, what is an anabolic uh, hormone, first of all, before we answer the question? Well, anabolic is something that builds your body. So usually that's something that, for example, bodybuilders want to do or other athletes is they want to build their body up. They want to build muscle. And, and you have to realize that anabolic hormones not only just build muscle, but they build up proteins throughout your whole body. And by the way, if people haven't heard me talk about proteins before, you have like 2 million kinds in your body. So anabolic hormones are going to be uh, building up all the proteins, not just you know, the different kind of muscle proteins. But actually, let me read this quote because what I did at the conference, which got everybody so intrigued, is I had this quote from a medical textbook, which is called Pathologic Basis of Disease by Robbins and Cotron, which is a very widely used medical textbook. And I have a little quote. It starts with blank. So it's blank is the most potent anabolic hormone known with multiple synthetic and growth-promoting effects. And three or four people got very excited and, and volunteered different ideas of what that could possibly be that were all very logical and that made sense. But none of them were right. So let me tell you what blank is. Blank is actually insulin. So to read the complete quote from the textbook, it read, insulin is the most potent anabolic hormone known with multiple synthetic and growth-promoting effects. All right, that's... Uh... That that floored everyone, I think, because uh, I think of insulin as the thing that allows your body to shuttle glucose from uh, from from your digestive system into your cells. Right, exactly, and it does. But you know, your food is made up of three main sources of calories because insulin is mostly working to get your food usable to your cells, so it can actually use your food. Because if you didn't have insulin you may as well not eat because your, your cells couldn't use your food and, and you certainly wouldn't survive very long. So insulin doesn't just work on carbohydrates. It also works equally importantly on fats and on proteins. And it has a major effect on those um, kind of metabolism. So, you know, most people do understand, as you said, the role with carbohydrates. But I have another quote from another medical textbook I read, so I'd like to read that now that really emphasizes the importance of uh, insulin in terms of protein. So this is from a textbook by Guyton and Hall called Textbook of Medical Physiology, an extremely popular, widely used medical textbook. And here's a quote. It says, virtually all protein storage comes to a halt when insulin is not available. The catabolism, which is a breakdown, a protein increases, protein synthesis stops, and large quantities of amino acids are dumped into the plasma, that is the blood. The resulting protein wasting is one of the most serious of the effects of severe diabetes. It can lead to extreme weakness and many deranged functions of the organs. So again, you know, you have people shying away from insulin. I mean, if you go on these uh, different 
high-protein websites of all these crazy high-protein diets, you find people kind of vilifying insulin, right? You find them saying, oh, insulin is evil, insulin causes cancer, insulin causes this and that. You want to keep insulin as low as you can. Well, guess, but you want to eat all this protein. Well, guess what? All this protein you're eating, you sit down and eat a pound of steak. You can't eat one cell of it unless you have properly functioning insulin. You just can't, um, you know, even use any of that protein. So, you know, these people really have it all wrong, and they show a complete disregard of basic human physiology. Hmm. So, so when people, so how do people try to keep their insulin low? And, and does it work? Well, they try to do it in exactly the wrong way. Most people are told when they read these crazy websites or these crazy books that the way to keep insulin low is by eating foods that are mostly very high in protein, that is animal foods, and, and to minimize carbohydrates. But actually, when they do that, they're doing exactly the wrong thing for, for a number of reasons. First off is, as we saw, insulin is very necessary to the storage and utilization of protein. So when you're eating all this protein, your insulin is going up as well. And in fact, protein also makes insulin go up, both in the short and the long term. So it, it's really important to know that protein, when you eat it, has an effect on insulin. And the other reason is that your body needs glucose to survive, right? All your cells prefer to burn glucose for fuel. Um, most of your cells can burn fats for fuel, and, and that's fine. If there's no glucose around, they'll just burn fat and be very happy, like your skeletal muscles can burn fat. And if there's no glucose around or not much glucose, that's what they're going to do. And you know, it won't be as good for them, but they'll be perfectly happy. But then you have parts of your body that are very vital, including your nervous system and especially your brain and your red blood cells, which carry oxygen throughout your body that can only burn glucose. That's it. They don't have glucose. That's it. And after a while, your brain can adapt to burning these so-called ketone bodies, which are byproducts of burning fat. It can do that to some extent. It can't do it to a full extent. Your brain always needs uh, some glucose, even when you're in what's called ketosis. And your blood, red blood cells can never burn um, either ketones or fat. They have a special physiology, and they can only burn glucose. So you don't have glucose. Your red blood cells start dying. Your red blood cells die, and, and you're in trouble because then you don't have any oxygen. So... You always need glucose. So what happens if you're living on steak? You're on these crazy high-protein diets and all you eat is steak. Well, your body's not going to let you die just because you're stupid, right? Your body's going to say, we're going to make some glucose. <laughs> so your body takes the protein and it makes glucose out of the protein, which is unfortunately kind of a toxic process that destroys your liver and your, liver and your kidneys and has some other downsides, which we don't have time to go into today. But basically, you know, your body's taking all this protein and turning it into glucose, and it does this partly with the help of a hormone to insulin that's called glucagon. So the glucagon tells your liver to take all this protein and turn it into glucose, which, is, which it does. And then at that point, you need the insulin to get the, the glucose uh, into cells other than, for example, your brain cells and red blood cells don't need glucose. Um, only certain cells in your body, I mean, don't need insulin to get the glucose. So let me back up on that. So your brain and your red blood cells don't need insulin to take up the glucose because it's really what they need to burn. So they just take it up directly. But most of the other cells in your body do need insulin to take up the glucose. So what happens is your hormones get completely out of balance and completely messed up when you're doing that. Okay, so so in some sense, I, I always thought the insulin and glucagon were, were antagonistic. They did opposite things, but it sounds like they need to work together in order to get uh, the, the glucose to where it needs to be in the proper amounts. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So in other words, you're right there. They have opposite effects on the amount of sugar that is glucose in your blood. So insulin lowers the amount of glucose in your blood by getting it into cells where it's either burned as fuel or it's stored as glycogen. And then glucagon 
is trying to raise the amount of glucose in your blood because remember, if you have too little glucose in your blood, you're going to die. So they do have opposite effects, but if you're eating a lot of just protein, they do have to work together because when you're eating, let's say you're just living on steaks and that's 100% of what you eat, on the one hand, you need insulin to get protein into your cells, but you also need glucagon to take the steak and break it down into glucose, which is you know something your body needs. So you're going to end up with high levels of both these hormones, and, and that's like a real mess. You know, you don't want that. It's kind of like you're having a drought and a flood at the same time, which mm-hmm. is what California's doing right now. They have this long drought right and now. They're having floods because the ground is, is in such bad shape. So, you know, after it hasn't rained for a long time, then all the rain comes down and you get all these mudslides and floods and things. So it's kind of what's going on in your body. These two hormones shouldn't be high at the same time, and yet that's what you're going to end up with. Oh, that sounds like sort of terrible poetry the uh the fact that you know animal agriculture on too large a scale does the same thing to our bodies as it does to our terrain oh yeah that that's a really good insight yeah that's a good way to think of it ah so uh but what what happens when we eat mostly or, or exclusively from the plant kingdom? What, what happens to our insulin and glucagon and our, our entire hormonal system? Then you go through a cycle, which is what you're supposed to go through. So after a meal, you know, insulin will go up. It won't go way up, but it'll go up to a certain extent. Remember, it's supposed to go up. You're designed to have your insulin go up. You know, again, if you're reading these crazy paleo or whatever websites, you're going to say, oh, my insulin went up. That's so horrible. Well, guess what? You're designed to have your insulin go up. It's supposed to go up. So it it goes up by, you know, the correct amount and all the various components of what you just ate. Let's say you just had a bean burrito with some brown rice and and an apple for dessert. You know, the um, various components of that, the fats and the carbohydrates and the uh, proteins go into your cells. And the insulin, some of the... um, the uh, carbohydrates will get stored as glycogen, right? And so after you run out of the glucose that's circulating in your blood, then you'll start burning some glycogen. And then after that, you're going to need some more glucose if you haven't eaten again yet. So then the glucagon comes out along with a couple other hormones that also raise blood sugar. And it tells your liver, hey, break down the rest of the glycogen you have stored and then start turning some proteins into glucose. So that'll happen for a while, and then you eat another meal. So if you're fortunate enough to, um, you know, have a good, reliable source of food and you're eating regularly throughout the day, your insulin levels are going to go up and down, your glucagon levels are going to go up and down, but they're going to go within limits that you're physiologically designed to tolerate then, and they're going to work together, and your blood sugar is going to be fairly smooth, and everything's going to work right. So that's going to be your ideal and please don't ever get freaked out by hearing that you know you shouldn't eat because it makes your insulin go up that's like saying you may as well starve yourself to death Mm. gotcha so so the the big takeaway even if you forget the specific mechanisms is that uh, assuming your your pancreas is working properly and it's producing um the, the hormones, that your body has a wisdom that you can trust, that if you, if you give it the right food, you don't have to worry. You don't have to sit there with, a, with an insulin counter or a glucagon counter and measure it. You don't have to do this with your intellect. Your body does it automatically and keeps things flowing just by virtue of the fact of you eating the proper human foods. Exactly. You know, and I'm glad you brought up the thing about if you have your pancreas working properly, because clearly insulin is made by the beta cells of the, the pancreas. And and glucagon, by the way, is also made in the pancreas, but by other cells. So, you know, if people have type 2 diabetes, then usually it's not a matter, at least in the beginning when it first starts, that the pancreas isn't functional. It's that they're not insulin sensitive. So oftentimes, if they go on this whole food plant-based diet, they regain their insulin sensitivity and the type 2 diabetes is reversed. And again, you know, if somebody has a diagnosis, they really should be working with a physician or other healthcare professional to get that done. If someone has type 1 diabetes and their, their pancreas basically is not producing insulin, 
then they are going to need to keep taking insulin shots. However, they often find uh, studies have found when people eat whole plant food diet that the amount of insulin they need after meals or before meals is drastically reduced and that a lot of the uh, kind of bad side effects of diabetes are lessened. For example, the cardiac effects tend to be greatly lessened in people with type 1 diabetes. So, again, work with your healthcare professional on this. But there's no one who can't benefit in terms of their insulin glucagon system by going on a whole food plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And the fact that type 1 diabetics can reduce their insulin significantly suggests that actually it's fat and protein that cause a greater spike in insulin than carbohydrates, right? Oh, absolutely, and especially over the long term, because what it's been found to do is increase the risk. So in other words, when you eat carbohydrates, your insulin's supposed to go up. But if you've been eating a lot of animal foods, proteins, then it makes your insulin shoot up more. So let's say your insulin would have gone up 20%, it might now go up 50% because the whole system's been messed up by all this protein. Mm -hmm. So let's talk for a minute about type 2 diabetes or what used to be called adult onset, which is uh, insulin resistance, not insulin insufficiency. So does eating a meat-based diet bring about diabetes, or is it the sugar, as we've been told by the American Diabetic Association and the medical mainstream? Well, actually, evidence points more strongly to the animal foods, but I don't want to say that eating tons of sugar, you know, drinking a liter of soda a day and, and eating cookies for breakfast and things are good. I mean, clearly, neither you nor I would say it's good to eat all that processed junk food for a number of reasons. But remember, when you're just really eating high amounts of these animal foods, your body is having to change the protein into glucose, or it's changing it into fat. And, and there's a lot of the physiology of diabetes where also the fat in the animal foods is gumming up your cells as well, and it's ruining the activity or impairing the activity of this round uh, hole. Remember, we can't put the square peg in the round hole. So the round hole, if we say that's the insulin receptor, if that gets gummed up by too much fat, then, you know, the receptor isn't going to work right either. So there's a lot of ways that animal foods are completely messing up your uh, insulin, kind of, should we say, physiology or operations in your body and reducing insulin sensitivity and therefore resulting in type 2 diabetes. Gotcha. All right. So, so you, when, in the talk, you talked about three different hormone systems. So one of them that I, I really wasn't thinking about, and I think you know, people with diabetes realize that it's a hormonal disease because they have to go to an endocrinologist. But most of us don't think of digestion or, uh, as, as hormonally based. But what, what are the other two hormonal systems that are, can be affected by our, our lifestyle and diet choices? Okay, well, the other ones I talked about, um, I talked about growth hormone and a, another hormone that's related to that called IGF-1. And IGF-1 is pushed to very high levels by eating animal foods, both because it's in some of the animal foods, especially dairy, as well as it makes your body produce more of its own. So growth hormone is something that, you know, kids are supposed to have in higher amounts and then it naturally goes down as you get older because you're not really growing in height or adding cells, uh, you know, and getting fatter doesn't really count. And you still need some growth hormone because you're producing new cells every second, but you don't need the amount you did as a kid. And then it also increases muscle protein synthesis. And the thing about growth hormone is that it um, leads to the production of IGF-1 which then uh, is responsible for a lot of the effects. So the two are very closely related. And the main thing I talked about with these that was really important is first off on the IGF-1, and you might have talked about this before, but it's a key controller of cell division and death, of metabolism, of lifespan. People who live to be 100 tend to have low IGF-1. And IGF-1 has also been shown in many, many studies to promote cancer. So you don't want higher levels of that than you need to have. Mm. So a lot of people kind of second-guess their body on growth hormone, and they take this recombinant human growth hormone as part of what's called anti-aging medicine. 
So even though there's nothing particularly wrong to them, this is not analogous to someone with type 1 diabetes taking insulin. That is necessary and life-saving. And as I said before, there's certainly other situations where taking hormones medically is necessary and life-saving. But this anti-aging medicine is not one of them. So people get injections of this human growth hormone, and it, it, it just really leads to bad side effects. Because remember, as we saw, you know, the people who live the longest actually have lower levels of the growth hormone in IGF-1, especially the IGF-1, which the growth hormone then tells your body to produce. So even though they think they're, you know, kind of making themselves healthier and living longer, it's actually having the opposite effect. And in terms of promoting cancer, there's that effect as well. And, and the whole thing has not been well studied. But here's the thing about hormones that I'd really like people to remember if, you know, you don't remember anything else is that you're not supposed to have high levels of hormones, any hormones. So you're just supposed to have low levels of hormones, the exact amount you need, because hormones are extremely potent. You know, they're just very, very, very powerful. So you don't want more than you need in terms of hormones. You, you want to almost more optimize your hormones and maximize your hormones. Mm. So when people are injecting themselves with all this, you know, human recombinant human growth hormone, they're just upping the levels of hormones to amounts where they never should be in a person who's middle aged or older and that's never a good thing. I mean your body knows best and second guessing your body, again unless you have a defined clinical disease, uh, is really always a bad thing to do. So so the people who are promoting anti aging medicine through growth hormone injection, what evidence do they point to to support their claims? Well, First of all, they'll kind of distort the evidence. For example, I looked at their website, and they had a quote saying, the researchers from the Harvard School of Public Health have found that anti-aging lifestyle can add 24.6 more years of productive lifespan. Well, when you look at that study, it, you know, it's nothing even remotely comparable to that. They were looking at the lowest-lived group of people in the U.S., you know, which are an extremely poverty-stricken group. I, I can't remember exactly which one it was. I believe it was a group of Native Americans. And they were looking at overall lifespan. So when you have people who are living in very poor living conditions and very, uh, you know, deficient in enough food and things like that, they're going to have high rates of infant mortality. And the fact these babies are dying in their first year is pulling down the average lifespan quite a bit. And then... What they compared it to was the longest living people in the U.S., which were a group of wealthy white women who, who lived in some affluent area of the country. Well, you can't compare those two groups because, first off, on the women, they were looking only at how long the um, adult women survived, and they, so they weren't factoring in infant mortality, which is a huge thing that's going to draw lifespan down. Then they were looking only at women for one group, whereas the mixture of men and women for the other. And we all know women tend to live longer than men. And, and the way the whole thing was done was so incredibly misleading that, you know, the statistic basically means nothing other than these people know nothing about physiology and whether they did this accidentally or they did it purposely to mislead people. I don't know. I don't want to cast any stones on people. I don't know. And but, you know, it, it's just such a ridiculous, um, you know, thing to state. And then, you know, all the evidence they cite is equally bad. The other thing that people, if they start getting these shots of not just human growth hormone, but sometimes they'll get shots of testosterone or other steroids, you know, they might start feeling better in the short run. They might notice in the short run that they have more muscle and less fat and that, you know, they have more sexual vitality or things like that. Well, first off, they could accomplish that just by changing their lifestyle, right? They could just eat a whole food plant-based diet and get out and exercise and, you know, start doing cardiac exercise every day and resistance bodybuilding and things like that and get the same effect naturally. But the other thing is that even though it has these attractive short-run effects, you're not looking at the long-run effects of things like promoting cell aging and promoting cancer, which also come along with the fact you have, you know, just taken kind of the lazy person's way of building muscle. So, you know, it, there really is no evidence to show that this is a good thing to do. And hopefully, 
you know, as people have been thinking about doing this kind of anti-aging manipulation to their body or if their loved ones are doing it or something, they'll start looking into this a lot deeper and stop it before they get to a point of irreparable harm. Gotcha. So it's, it's another uh, so, sort of case of, you know, we're, we're addicted to the idea of growth, that growing things and taking things bigger is always better. And, you know, we can see it in terms of economies that, uh, you know, our, our addiction to growth as a, as a, as a world is, is leading us down some very dangerous paths as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. So the next hormone pair I talked about was the hormones everybody thinks of first when you say hormones, which are estrogen and testosterone which are closely related hormones. In fact, the body can and actually does convert testosterone into estrogen. So their chemical structures are very similar. They're, they have a steroidal structure. And they both have far-reaching, both estrogen and testosterone, have far-reaching effects in the body beyond reproduction and sex. For example, testosterone, as we talked about, makes people build muscle because it's very anabolic, kind of like insulin is. But you can't, you can't kind of build muscle by injecting yourself with insulin because that'll push your blood sugar down so low that you go into a coma and die. So it's really impossible to abuse insulin for building muscle. But people can abuse testosterone for building muscle. And again, you know, there's not the same necessarily long-term studies on abusing testosterone as there are on taking supplemental estrogen, which is a decision women make in conjunction with their doctors properly so and they need to weigh the pros and the cons for them and certainly there's times when taking estrogen would make sense there's many other times it wouldn't for women but the effects of taking estrogen have been studied and and they're pretty well known whereas and you have to study women over the long period to see that because some of those things don't show up right away for example higher rates of breast cancer Breast cancer isn't something that that shows up in two weeks, so you really have to follow women over a long time to see if when they're taking estrogen, they're going to get higher rates of breast cancer, and it turns out they do. But when people are taking um, testosterone, men are taking testosterone, in order to see if rates of cancer go up, you'd have to follow them, you know, over 10 or 20 years, and because this kind of abuse is fairly recent, a lot of those studies haven't been done. And so, you know, men feel that it's safe to do this, whereas actually there's no reason to think it is safe. In fact, even the FDA says it's not safe, and we both know they're not a really aggressive agency in terms of trying to control, you know, substances that people put in their bodies. So if even the FDA requires a warning on testosterone replacement therapy, we have to know that it it can be pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. So for, for men in particular, if they're feeling, you know, sort of sluggish, fatigued, weak, no sexual appetite. So there's there's like a pill or an injection that sort of can magically make all that go away. But we have to remember that the cause is not a deficiency of synthetic testosterone. Right. The co- there's a lifestyle cause. So the question right. is, the question is not why are we not the question is not how do we get more testosterone exogenously into the body the question is why is the body underproducing this hormone Right exactly and not only that but these feelings of sluggishness and gaining weight and all can all be traced to a single hormone because there's a lot of hormones and they work together kind of um, synergistically and so, you know, when you unbalance one hormone, you're going to tend to unbalance others. So, you know, I know it's a lot harder to change one's diet and to get up and exercise and take, you know, walks or runs and, you know, lift weights and all that. It's a lot more work than just going to the doctor and getting a testosterone injection. But, you know, if you're thinking in terms of your long-term health and vitality and survivability and all, you're certainly going to want to go the more natural way. Right. Do do you happen to know of any studies that are being conducted now, long-term men's health studies on testosterone supplementation? Well, there are studies being conducted. Some of them are a little bit skewed. For example, one study that recently came out that said the um, testosterone injections were safe and they were looking at cardiac outcomes. They excluded people, and it was like a, a VA study. 
they excluded people who already had heart disease. So most older men have some kind of heart disease. So when you exclude all the people that have heart disease, you're really not looking at a representative sample of older men in terms of is this safe for them because there could also be cardiac repercussions as, as well as um, prostate cancer and other kinds of cancer. So some of the studies being done really aren't very well designed in terms of how you and I might want to see them ideally designed. So you have to be kind of discriminating. And in the meantime, the cautious thing to do is just to not take these hormones, again, unless you have a clinically diagnosed reason. There are some men who should get supplemental testosterone, but it's not most of the men who are using it, unfortunately. Right. And you bring up a really good point, I think, for, for, for folks to self-educate about when, I, when they read about a clinical trial. And, you know, most people read about clinical trials on Facebook or, or in blogs as opposed to from the, uh, you know, the journals where they're published. But one question always you want to ask is what were the exclusion criteria for this trial? Right. Meaning who wasn't allowed in it? Because if the exclusion criteria excludes someone like me, then there's really nothing that I can learn for myself from the trial, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, because, you know, if you're studying the effect on heart disease and you're excluding everybody that has heart disease, how does that even make sense? You know, how did they even get money to do that study? I don't get it. Right. Well, I guess they're, they're looking at confounds, right? So they want to see, you know, the, um, the 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 creation of heart disease de novo for, from from scratch from people who don't have it. The problem is we live in a society where the few older men who don't have heart disease are are and they haven't you know been eating a plant based diet and doing all the right things are probably sort of genetic freaks, right? And, and right, exactly, exactly. Or they might be. Yeah, they, they have a genetic program that says they're, they're not going to develop these problems, or maybe they have other healthy habits that have been keeping these problems at bay. You know, maybe they're very high exercises and they sleep regularly and they're doing everything right in their lives, and they might not be entirely plant-based, but maybe they're eating twice as many fruits and vegetables as the average person. I mean, you just really need to consider all these things, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of these studies don't. Right. All right. So is, is, is there more or should we wrap up the, the hormone discussion? Well, one thing I wanted to mention about estrogen and testosterone is, again, is to emphasize that uh, estrogen is very high in dairy and eggs because both those are related to female reproductive tract activities. And so if men are kind of freaked out about getting estrogen, and, and you'll typically meet men who will say, oh, I would never eat soy because it's full of phytoestrogen. And, and they don't really understand that it's not in any way, shape, or form the same as human estrogen. But they're pretty happy to chow down on cheese and eggs, which contain estrogen that's pretty much identical to human estrogen. And so they're eating all this animal estrogen while they're being kind of scared off of the protective plant phytoestrogen. So just keep that in mind. Also, a lot of times steroids are used to promote growth in animals so that they're also very high in different kinds of red meat. So pretty much any kind of um, animal foods you eat are going to contain these hormones. And as we looked at it, you know, that can lead to things like reproductive cancers and blood clots and things like that. So again, the plant-based is safer. Right. So what I hear you saying, because when I talk to... Um folks who are concerned about their health. As I said at the beginning, most of the time the discussion around hormone disruption is around environmental toxins. And you say that's, that's a negative eight compared to the negative 10 of animal foods. It's everywhere in the environment. So it's, not, it's, it's a public health issue. It's not really an individual health issue to the same extent. Um, and, you know, and people are really the same people who are freaking out about getting um, bottled water or a glass of water in a restaurant that, that's sitting in a plastic cup are at the same time eating huge amounts of, you know, bone broth and, and eggs and dairy and animal products where, the, you know, they're getting multiples of the dosage of, of these uh, disruptive hormones, right? Oh, absolutely, because as we talked about before, you know, these kind of disruptive hormones all accumulate in fat because they're fat-soluble. They're not water-soluble. 
So you think of like fat and water don't mix together because things, some things either dissolve in fat or oils and some things dissolve in water. So all these kind of disruptive chemicals everybody's afraid of dissolve in fat. So when they're eating things like cheese or fish, fish are often found to be the foods that have highest amounts of these persistent organic pollutants in meat. In addition to getting the hormones that were naturally in the animal, because remember the animal was alive, so it naturally had hormones, so they're getting those hormones, they're getting huge doses of these persistent organic chemicals on top of it. And in fact, most people get 89 to 99% of the persistent organic pollutants in their body from animal foods. So it, it kind of, you know, all comes together in one big whammy that you don't necessarily want hitting your body. Wow. So 80 to, 89 to 90% of the, of the POPs are from animal foods as opposed to plastic, shampoo, Teflon, um, pesticides in, in fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. And that's true even if you're eating organic meat. So think of it this way. You're eating, let's say, organic grass-fed beef, right? What could be better? So this cow's out there, and it's grazing on grass, okay? So the grass has some persistent organic pollutants on it just because they're carried by wind and water, and they're all over the planet. And even if you took the cow to eat grass in Antarctica, if there were any, there would be persistent organic pollutants on this grass. But remember, we talked about there's just some on the surface of the grass. It doesn't really accumulate in the grass because the grass has very little fat. But then the cow's walking around and eating this grass, and all the persistent organic pollutants that were on the grass is now bioaccumulating in the cow's fat. And it will accumulate and accumulate and accumulate over the life of a cow, which is longer when you're looking at grass-fed cows because they take longer to get to their adult weight where they'll be killed and sold. So all it has, the cow has an entire lifetime of accumulating these chemicals in its body. And so the amount of these chemicals in the cow versus on the grass can be a difference of a factor of 70,000. So, you know, if you just had gone out and eaten some nice organic kale and washed it off, you would be getting very little of these chemicals. But when you eat this organic beef, so to speak, you're getting a huge dose of it. So don't be fooled by the fact it says organic into thinking you're not getting these hormones. You might not be getting added hormones, but you're getting the natural hormones. And the same with organic milk. You know, there's dairy cows that are used for organic milk aren't given organic hormones, but they still have to be kept pregnant all the time in order to have calves to produce milk. And pregnant animals uh, produce a lot more estrogen than non-pregnant animals do. So all the estrogen the cow herself produces is going to be in her milk, even if she's not given any added um, hormones. So, you know, don't be fooled by the fact this is organic. It's not doing you any good. Gotcha. Hey, would you be able to, to shoot me up uh, some of the references or to a page on your website so people can, can see where that, you know, 80, 90, 90% number came from and the 70,000 times of bioaccumulation? Uh, so I can... uh, yeah, I will definitely do that. Good. So that'll be in the show notes uh, for for this episode. So if you just if you're if you're listening in the future, which you will be because it's now the past, um, if you just go to plantyourself.com and in the top right search bar, just search for Janice. Um, we will have we'll have a couple of uh, of podcasts with with her, but this will be the uh, the most recent one on hormones. And then if you click on that, you'll find in the show notes, Janice will. Uh, kindly uh, give us some of the uh, the references. So uh, one, one of the things we pride ourselves on in the uh, plant-based whole foods community is uh, we, we like to be evidence-based. So uh, unlike a lot of other websites that don't share the, um, the references, we, we, we like to do that. Cool. So any, any, anything else before we uh, let people go, go back to their hormone-avoiding lives, ex external hormone-avoiding lives? No, I think we've, we've given um, you enough to think about, hopefully, to, and then taught you something you didn't know before. Awesome. So the, so the big takeaways, uh, these, these are powerful little, little, little buggers running around our body, doing important things, sending important messages, and they will work in, in most people, most of the time, they will work exquisitely well to keep us healthy, 
and happy if we just don't mess with them. And that means with, uh, with lifestyle, with the things we put in our bodies, and with the foods we eat. Absolutely. Well, it's great talking to you about this, Howard. Yeah, thanks so much for, for taking the time. I feel like I, I have a much better grasp than I did before. And I, lo I love the way you can take these sort of very, very sort of scientifically complicated issues and frame them in, um, in, in, in ways that people can really grasp and, and take action on. So before, before you go, how can people get more from you? How can they find out more about what you do and learn more? Well, my site is perfectformuladiet.com. So if you go to perfectformuladiet.com, the best place to start is a blog tab, which I uh, update as often as I can, and that has a lot of articles on whole food, plant-based nutrition, the dangers of animal foods, and so on. And the other thing is I have a book, The Perfect Formula Diet, and that has a lot of information in it that we covered today in terms of hormones and uh, persistent organic pollutants, plus a lot more, a lot of information about protein and inflammation and things like that. So a lot of other topics as well. Awesome. Well, Dr. Janice Stanger, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and taking the time with us today. You're welcome. Okay, be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you did and you'd like more and you're new to the show, you can find all the old episodes at plantyourself.com. If you'd like to share the love, there's three main ways to do it. One is to share these episodes on social media with friends. A second is to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And I got two lovely reviews this week that I'd like to share with you. One from Sled XL writes, very good conversations with people who are researching and covering food science and health and challenging big pharma and corporate food production. An educated consumer is our best bet for the future. Right on. Thank you so much, SledXL. That really encapsulates what I'm hoping to accomplish here. Auntie Val writes, Howard is an excellent interview, and even when I think I'm not going to be interested in a certain guest or topic, Howard always surpasses my expectations. I've learned a lot from this podcast. Thank you, Auntie Val. That really warms my heart. If you'd like to leave a review, you can just go to iTunes or Stitcher and find the podcast and do so. You can also, uh, from any of the podcasts on plantyourself.com, there are links to both of those, and it should be pretty self-explanatory. If not, drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com, and we'll figure out how to get that done. The third way you can say thanks is to contribute, to become a patron uh, of the podcast. You can do that on plantyourself.com. On the right sidebar, there's a couple of links. Those donations really help. They, they both um, help me devote the time to this, to upgrade equipment, and to know that there's people out there who, who really value it in a tangible way. I've got some exciting professional news. I've got a course coming out on how to transition to a plant-based diet, and it's based on the book that I co-wrote with Garth Davis, Proteinaholic. You don't have to have read the book to participate in the course. If you're interested, um, best place to go is trianglebewell.com and sign up for my mailing list. That's my practice website. That's where I let people know about the stuff that I'm up to. Also at Triangle Be Well, if you're there, you might as well download the Healthcare GPS report. As uh, SledXL wrote, this is about health and food science and challenging big pharma, corporate food production, and also challenging the medical system where it needs to be challenged. So I love this educated consumer is our best bet for the future. And my goal is to make each of you an educated consumer of health and wellness care. So that's all at trianglebewell.com. If you're tired of typing that much, you can just do tbwell.com. It'll get you to the same place. So in garden news, we got a whole bunch of stuff under grow lights. Um, we have the new, a lot of seedlings under fluorescence, and my son took up all the LED grow lights in his bedroom, which now is son's bed, but with lots of growing lights and shelves, and he's growing microgreens. So if you're in the uh, Triangle of North Carolina area and you want to get some A1 Primo radish sprouts, buckwheat sprouts, broccoli sprouts, um, we've, we've been doing a little bit of research, he and I, on the uh, cancer-fighting and antioxidant properties of, of these microgreens, and they are through the roof. 
And one of the things that I love is, you know, 16-year-old boys can be very jaded. And yet when they grow something and when they put that seed in the dirt and they see the plant coming up, it is transformative. And it really reminds us of the miracle that is life, that is each of our lives, that is the world all around us. And it's so gratifying as a parent to see that uh, wonder kindled in my child. So here's to all of us looking around and remembering that everything we see is at some level a miracle. And as always, be well, my friends.